Okay, good to see everyone tonight. <clears throat> we are in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We started this last week, and this uh, chapter is a long controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees that originated over the issue of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day and false accusations made against Jesus and the disciples of breaking the Sabbath day, which then leads to this controversy over the Sabbath, the true meaning uh, in these things, and then it leads into blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and all sorts of good stuff. So anyway, we started that last week, and we'll pick up this week in verse 8, but we'll, we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 37 tonight, but we'll pick up in verse 8 in our <clears throat> exposition. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those with him, but for the priests only. Or have you not read in the law? that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, 
But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we do pray that you help us, Lord, to understand, and Lord, that we would uh, be with you, Lord, that we would not be against you, Lord, that we would be good trees that bear good fruit, Lord, that we would live a sober life, Lord, in the fear of the Lord, knowing that every uh, careless word that we speak will be brought to light on the day of judgment. So, Lord, may we not sin, Lord, carelessly, and Lord, may we not sin uh, by blaspheming either. But, Lord, live an upright and a holy life before you. So, Lord, teach us tonight from your word. And, Lord, help us to understand. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so in verses 1 through 7, you have this uh, controversy that erupts because Jesus' disciples are picking heads of grain on the Sabbath day. And Jesus uses this example of David eating the consecrated bread that was only lawful for the priest to eat as justification that in the case of necessity, right, whenever there is desperation, then we have to look at that and it has to help us understand the law in the way that it's supposed to be properly understood. And in the case of the disciples in Jesus, they're not being careless. They're not neglecting and uh, failing to think properly about the upcoming Sabbath day. They're not spending the day before in leisure and activities, doing this and that. And then it comes up upon them and they've not made preparations. And now they're desperate and they have to go out and do these kinds of things. But rather, they're going about doing good on the Sabbath day, going from village to village, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, doing these kinds of good deeds, which is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And they're hungry, and so that they don't become famished on the way, they're eating a little bit of grain. And what they're doing is in no way, shape, or form a violation of the Sabbath commandment. So they are giving a false accusation against Jesus, and that's why he tells them that if you knew the commandment, I desire compassion, not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. You're condemning innocent men because you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand the proper interpretation of the law, of the Sabbath, what it means to keep it, right? They have a skewed, corrupt understanding of this, and then they're imposing that upon Jesus and his disciples. This is uh, classic legalism, right? This is legalism. Taking some standard outside the Bible from their own mind, and then imposing it upon others and saying, if you don't do this, you're sinning against God. But who told them that it was a sin to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath day when people are going about doing the types of things Jesus and his disciples are doing? God didn't tell them that. So if God didn't tell them, then where did it come from? Well, it came from their own mind, secondarily, but primarily it comes from their father, who is the devil, right. the father of all lies. If it doesn't come from God, then it originates from the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and this is what they are doing to Jesus and his disciples, right? And this is according uh, to what we know in Romans chapter uh, 10, where it says of the Jews that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They have a zeal 
for God, but not according to true knowledge. To, their zeal for God is according to false knowledge, human knowledge, their own it's demonic knowledge, but they act like it's zeal for God. And so this is what Jesus is dealing with. And this is not surprising to us because you find this commonly today in the churches as well. People have zeal for religion, for Christianity, but not according to the word of God. And then they will accuse and actually condemn the innocent man, the righteous man, because he doesn't match up to their traditions, their traditions that they have always kept and done, though their traditions have no foundation or basis in the word of God. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 8. Verse 8, 4, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here, <clears throat> whenever we're dealing with the proper interpretation of the Sabbath commandment, who is the best one to go to? Who is the best one to teach us, to give us the right understanding? Were these Pharisees there in creation when the Sabbath day was instituted? Were they there when God created the world and when God set aside the Sabbath day, blessed it, and made it holy? They were not anywhere to be found. That happened thousands of years before these men ever existed, before they were ever on the earth. But who was there? Who was there and who is the one who instituted the Sabbath day, who gave the commandment, who set aside the day, and who is the best interpreter, teacher of what it means to keep the Sabbath day? The Son of Man. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day because he is the one who founded the Sabbath day for man, for the benefit of man. He is the one who sanctified it at creation. So if anyone is going to determine what to do and what not to do on the Sabbath day, it should be Jesus, not the Pharisees, right? So why would you go to them and listen to them? And why are they criticizing Jesus? If he's doing it on the Sabbath day, then it's lawful. Then, right. then they just need to follow his example because he is the Lord of the Sabbath day. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Verses 1 to 3. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their host. By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all of his work which God had created and made. So there, God, the Lord, is the one who did this. And Jesus is the Lord God. He is the Lord God. He was there at creation. He was the one that God used to create the world. And he is the one who sanctified and set aside the Sabbath day in this way under the will of God. So if we're going to look for someone to teach us how it is that we keep the Sabbath day, then who should we look to? Jesus. To Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. He is Lord of the Sabbath and is going to and fro, doing good deeds, preaching the gospel, is that breaking the Sabbath or keeping it? That is keeping the Sabbath day, right? Now, verses 9 uh, to 14, we have another controversy on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day. It says, Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? 
How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Here, departing from there, from this controversy, right, he went into their synagogue. He had been going, right, they were walking through this field, but they're on their way to the town where the synagogue is. And why is Jesus going into the synagogue? To preach the gospel, to preach the word of God, to teach the people the will of God. That's why he's going here and there doing what he's doing. So he goes into their synagogue, and there in the synagogue there is a man whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They are the ones who bring it to his attention. There is the man there. Obviously, he has this ailment, this physical disease. His hand is withered, and they bring it to Jesus' attention. Notice this man with the withered hand, and they ask him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, are they asking this honestly? No, it tells us they're doing it dishonestly. They're doing it with malice, with malicious evil intention because they want to accuse him. They're looking for some reason to accuse him. So they know that Jesus does good deeds. They know that he uh, does these kinds of good works, that he heals people, that he has the ability to do that. And they're trying to use this against him, bringing to his attention this man with a withered hand and then even prompting the controversy, right? Prompting it in such a way that if he doesn't do it, then he's going to look unloving because he didn't heal this man. But then if he does heal this man, then they're going to accuse him. So this is what they're doing. They're trying to pin him into a corner, right? Trying to trap him in this way so that they can accuse him of committing sin, right? That's what they're wanting to accuse him of. They want to discredit him in the eyes of the people and in their own eyes. They are laying a trap for him. Psalm 119, we've seen this. Psalm 119.85 says, The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are, not, who are not in accord with your law. And then also in verse 95, The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. The arrogant, the wicked, they dig pits, they wait, they look for some occasion in order to destroy, to trap, to cause the righteous man to stumble and fall. And this is what they're doing here. They're bringing this up, not because they care about the man with a withered hand. They don't care about him at all. He's just a means to their end. They're using him for their own evil agenda. So they don't care about the man with the withered hand, and they don't have any true care about the truth. They're not concerned. They're not coming as sincere men who honestly want to know, Lord, what, what is the proper thing to do on the Sabbath day? We want to keep the Sabbath day. We want to be faithful to God. We want to do God's will, right? We love God, and because we love God, we want to please him. But I, I want to understand more clearly, more accurately, what is uh, permissible? What should I do on the Sabbath day? Right? If they're asking in that way, then that's good. Right? We ought to ask those kinds of questions. We ought to seek knowledge and understanding so that we have a better understanding and comprehension of the will of God. But they're not doing this at all. They're coming with this malice, with this ulterior motive to trap him and to try to destroy him. And so they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? 
so that they might accuse him. So he answers them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Right here, Jesus brings this forward and says, Which one of you, you hypocrites? Right, you're accusing me. You're bringing this to me. Okay, he turns the table on them and says, Which one of you, if one of your animals, one of your sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, are you going to leave your sheep, your valuable possession, in that pit on the Sabbath day and wait until the next day before you go and rescue that sheep? And of course they're not going to do that. No one in their right mind would do that, and no one would accuse a person of breaking the Sabbath day if they went and rescued their sheep out of this pit. Right? It's not something that they planned. It's an accident. It's an emergency. If you don't get the sheep out of the pit, it's going to die. Right? And so you have to do that. Or what if it's one of your children that falls into the pit? Are you going to say, son, I hope you make it all right. You know, here's a blanket. I'll throw some bread down to you and uh, we'll get you out tomorrow. You're not going to do that. You'll go get him out. And if you need assistance from other people, from your neighbors, you'll go get them and they'll gladly come and help you. And no one's going to say, well, do you think that this is okay for us to do on the Sabbath day? You know, should we really stop and think about this? No, of course not. Everyone understands instinctively that this is not in any way, shape, or form a violation of the Sabbath day. If something like this happens, some emergency that requires our attention and someone needs to be or something needs to be delivered on the Sabbath day, then you just do it, right? You do what is necessary to do. Luke chapter 13. Luke 13 and verse 10. Luke 13 verse 10 says, And he was teaching in one of their synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all of his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. There again, a similar situation, right? All of them on the Sabbath day untie their donkey or ox, and they take it to water. You have to do that because the animal cannot go a whole day without water. There are things that are necessary, essential for the sake of life, right? For the good right, of your animals. Well, this woman has been in this affliction for 18 years. 18 years. And she's supposed to wait and come back the next day to be healed? No, of course not, right? Why is it wrong for him for doing this for an animal just for their physical needs, 
Right? An animal doesn't have a, a soul. He doesn't have a, a spirit. He's not, the animal's not going to heaven. He's going to die and be buried and, and turn back into dust. But the woman has a soul, an immortal soul. And she's a child of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham, meaning she's a Jew. And we're not supposed to do good for her on the Sabbath day because it's work? No, no way. No way is this the intent of the Sabbath commandment. They are completely misstruing it and corrupting it because of their own perverted mind. Also, while we're here, Luke 14, Luke 14, verse 1 says it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him up on the Sabbath? And they could make no reply to this. So this is what Jesus does. He brings reality to the forefront, right? Facts, reality, obvious, clear, simple understanding and knowledge of truth and what people would do and the situation and what they themselves do, right? They themselves know that if one of their sheep or one of their children or one of their oxen falls into a well on the Sabbath day, they would deliver it. They all know instinctively that it, there's nothing wrong with them taking their animals to go and get water on the Sabbath day. That this is not breaking the Sabbath day. Now verse 12. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Right? In terms of worth and value, is the sheep more valuable than the man? And the answer is obviously no, because the sheep is not created in the image of God. Right. The sheep does not have an immortal soul. The sheep is not going to live forever. The man will live forever, either in heaven or hell. He has a soul that will live forever, but not the sheep. The sheep has his brief life, and then he dies, and then that's the end of it, right? It's all over. And yet, because it is an animal that has life, and because a righteous man does good to even his animals, and because God even loves and cares for and provides for the animals, we know that we ought to deliver them if they fall into a well on the Sabbath day. Now, if we would do that for an animal on the Sabbath day, then shouldn't we obviously know that we should do that for a man on the Sabbath day, seeing that a man is of more value than a sheep? Men are more valuable than sheep, than dogs, than cats than birds, right? Than anything else in creation. People are more valuable. I know that may be controversial today, especially in certain pockets of the world in America where animals are greater than anything else. But, you know, you get in more trouble for killing a dog than you would a person. But this isn't the way it is in the Bible. In the Bible, people are more valuable than animals. And therefore, if it is okay to do good to an animal on the Sabbath day, then certainly it is lawful to do good to a man on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is in no way, shape, or form breaking the Sabbath day. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 31. Matthew 10, 31. says, Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You are more valuable 
than many sparrows. And then also 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter nine, verses eight through ten. It says, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. It was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Here, he's making this connection between the ox and what was commanded in the law of Moses for the good of your animal. And Jesus is making this obvious connection that the reason this was written is not merely for the sake of the animal, but rather that from the lesser, we would also apply it to the greater. Right? If it's not right for an animal that is working to not receive some reward for his wages, right? the ox is threshing out the grain, don't muzzle him. That way he can eat some because the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, again, if that's true for the oxen, then how much more true is that for people? Of course it should be true for people because people are more valuable than oxen, than sheep, than sparrows than any other animals. So if it is lawful to deliver an animal on the Sabbath, then how much more is it lawful to deliver a man? So is Jesus breaking the Sabbath? Of course not. No. Now, is he breaking it in their eyes? In their eyes, yes, but their eyes are blind. Their expectation and their standard is an unbiblical expectation and standard. According to the true meaning of the Sabbath, according to Moses and according to the word of God, Jesus is keeping the Sabbath according to its true intent. They are not keeping the Sabbath according to the true intent, but they claim to be keeping it according to the true intent. Now, I'm pointing this out because there are certain fanatical interpreters of the Bible who say that Jesus was actually breaking the Sabbath day because this is in the New Covenant, and the Sabbath day is not applicable anymore. That was for the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, the Sabbath has been done away with, and we don't have to keep the Sabbath. But is anyone reading this objectively? Can, is that the proper view? That Jesus is actually breaking the Sabbath, and that what he's doing here, had he done that a hundred years before, or had he done that uh, during the time of Moses, he would have been breaking the Sabbath. But because he's in this new covenant, right? That there's just been this dividing line in time before this would be breaking it. But now, because he's on the other side of this line, he's not breaking it. No, come on. No way, man. No way. It's ridiculous. It's utterly stupid. Actually, John chapter five, John chapter five. I listened to a man one time. His name is Charles Leiter. And he wrote a book. I don't know the name of the book, but I can find it out for you in which he's denying the Ten Commandments for the Christian. The Ten Commandments were only for Israel, only for the nation Israel, uh, for the Jews from Moses until Christ. But now the ten, the ten Commandments are not applicable to Christians. And the verse that convinced him that this was the case is John chapter 5, verse 18. John five eighteen. He was preaching through John. He said that he used to have the typical historic 
interpretation, <laughs> reformed interpretation of the Ten Commandments, which is the one that I hold to, which is the biblical one. And then he read this verse and preached to it, and it changed his view to the heretical view. Okay? Chapter 5, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now here, when it says that he was breaking the Sabbath, how does John mean that? Does he mean that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath in the true sense or breaking it according to their false interpretation? Right, because he's also calling him, they're also wanting to kill him for blasphemy. But was Jesus blaspheming? Because he was calling God his own father. No, but according to them he was because they didn't believe he was the son of God. So would anyone reading this with a right mind come to the conclusion that Jesus was actually breaking the Sabbath constantly during his ministry because he believed the Sabbath was done away with. It was only for Israel, and now he's in the New Covenant, even though he hadn't died yet. The day of Pentecost had to happen, so don't bring that point up. And now he is he doesn't have to keep it anymore. It's utterly ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous, but they do this because of Jude 1 verse 4. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And if there is no Ten Commandments, and it's all just love God, and we're under the love of Christ and the grace of God, then just do whatever you please, right? There's no standard. There's no expectation, no objective standard or expectation of what it means to obey God, to keep his commandments, to do his will. That's why they do it. It's because they want to practice sin, but we cannot, we can't do that. Okay. Matthew chapter 12, verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. Here, Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows what they're doing. He knows what they're up to. Now we might say, well, then why do this publicly? Right? Why not just avoid the controversy? Couldn't he take the man aside afterwards privately and heal him? Couldn't he say, you know, let's just wait and do this later because, you know, if I do it here in front of all these people, it's going to cause a big stir. I know these guys are out to get me and I don't want to get in hot water. So let's just do it later, do it on the side, do it in private, right? And, and come see me later and we'll take care of it. He doesn't do that at all. He does it publicly on purpose because he's in the right they are in the wrong, and he's putting them to open shame. Putting them to open shame. They are the ones who brought it up publicly. Therefore, he will be the one to finish it publicly, even though he knows it's going to lead to controversy. He knows it's going to not be received well from these people. Now, again, I say this because many times people will say, well, you know, just just do things uh, in such a way that it doesn't ruffle any feathers, don't upset anyone, don't make anyone mad, try to keep the peace right in this way. But how can you keep the peace with these people? There's, it's impossible. They're fault finders, they're grumblers, they're malcontents. He can't even sneeze without these people criticizing him. And why should the righteous be ashamed of doing good deeds publicly because of the criticisms of malcontents, right. grumblers, and fault finders? We shouldn't let them dictate what we do. And why should he deny the people, the believers there, like his disciples, and what other believers are there? Why should he deny them the benefit for their own faith in seeing this man healed on the Sabbath day? And why also deny God the glory 
right? Because it brings glory to God for him to do this on the Sabbath day. So he's not ashamed to do God's will, to do it openly, even though he knows the result of that is going to be criticism. They're going to want to kill him. They're going to want to destroy him, which is exactly what happens. But he doesn't avoid controversy just for the sake of avoiding controversy. Now, that being said, again, we shouldn't seek out controversy just for the fun of it. We don't want to be like those kinds of people. There are those who are fight, like to fight, they like to brawl, they like to quarrel over useless things. Okay, we don't want to be like that. We want to live a peaceful life. We want to get along with others. But there are some people that won't let you have peace. And when they rise up, then you just have to deal with them, right? They're, they're like a uh, noxious fly, an annoying fly buzzing around you. And what do you have to do to a fly? You gotta swat it, man. You gotta swat that thing away. And that's what he does to these people. Okay, so, and he's not doing anything wrong, though he knows it's going to lead to controversy and criticism. Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So even here in the presence of an obvious miracle of God, the power of God, it does not deter them. They are unmoved. They are hard-hearted. They are fully content. Or, uh, they're fully intent on destroying him. This is why they brought it up it's to accuse him so that they could destroy him. And now they have what they want. And they're going to try to use it to destroy him. Okay, verse 15. Verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Here, aware of this, he withdrew from there. Right? There's no point in dying needlessly. Right? There's no point in being around these kinds of people, knowing what they're up to. So he's not going to stay there. He's not going to stay there and let these people harass him needlessly. He knows that they're up, what they're up to, so he leaves. He withdraws from there, not because Jesus is afraid of dying, not because he's afraid of suffering and persecution, but it's not his time yet. His time has not yet come. When his time has come, then he will willingly go to Jerusalem, to the lion's den, and he will lay down his life for his sheep. But at this point, he has more ministry to do, more work to do, and so he withdraws from there. But there are many who followed him, and he healed them all. Not everyone is a naysayer and critic. There are those, like the Pharisees, who are this way. But not everyone is. There are some who are following him, and they're receiving the benefits of the ministry of Christ. Right? They're following him, and he is healing them. He is blessing them in this way. In this way. But then it says in verse 16, he warned them not to tell who he was. These people are believing that he is the Christ. They're following him in this sense. But he's telling them, don't tell people who I am. Now we might ask, why? Why would Jesus tell people, don't tell people who I am? Right? Isn't it good 
for people to know that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't this something that we should be spreading far and wide, telling everyone about these types of things? Well, I think the reason, if we go to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 15, the issue is not that Jesus doesn't want people to believe in him. Uh, he wants people, uh, he doesn't want them to know. We know that that's not the case. He is publicly, openly saying these things. However, the problem is the, the people. It's their expectation. Their expectation is sinful, it's evil. And in John chapter 6, verse 15, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, it says, Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself, alone here the people have this unbiblical expectation of the christ what the christ who he's going to be and what he's going to do they want to take him and make him king by force and this is contrary to the will of god right. contrary to the purpose for christ's coming right so because of this because the people don't have their mind set on the things of god then Jesus is not giving them all of this information. And he doesn't want these people to tell them who he is because the crowds, the nominals, the unbelievers, what they're getting all caught up in is the hoopla. And then they're wanting Jesus to do things that he doesn't want to do. And it's hindering him from doing what he does want to do. So don't tell them, but rather keep it to yourself. Then verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus did not come to try and have a huge following of people, to get popularity, notoriety among men, to get fame and fortune. That's what most people in this situation would do. They would use the miracles, they would use the crowds in order to promote themselves, self-promotion, in order to build a platform by which they might set themselves up and then have many people hang on their every word because they love the praise of men and also the financial monetary benefit that comes from having so many people follow you. Right? Isn't Jesus sitting on a gold mine? In terms of, if you're looking at it from a carnal, worldly perspective, as someone who can do miracles like this, right? who has the ability to communicate the way that he does, who knows the word of God the way that he does, right? just the miracles themselves is enough for him to go and make a fortune and for him to have a huge following of people. But did he come to do that? No, he did not come. He's not crying out in the street. He's not begging people to follow him. He's not going around trying to gather this large movement of people. He's going about preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel. And those that have been given to him by the Father, God is using that to draw them to Christ. But the ones who will not believe, he doesn't want them. 
right? He's not clamoring for them to come and be his friends and to come and to give him a big movement in order to bolster his self-esteem because he needs to have a crowd of 5,000 so that he feels successful and he feels like he's really made it in the world. He's not doing that, right? He just wants to go preach the word of God, proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He's not quarreling, right? So he's not going around picking fights. He's not crying out. No one is hearing his voice in the streets. Again, not that Jesus isn't preaching and teaching. He doesn't mean it in that sense. He means it in the sense of he's humble. He's humble. He's quiet in the way that he's going about doing his ministry. He's not trying to get attention for himself, and he's not trying to build this big movement. But a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He's looking for the elect, the elect. And even in the elect that are a battered reed, he's not going to break them off. Because in the elect, even after their conversion, after their salvation, do they still have sin? Do we still have the flesh to deal with? Yes, we still are a bruised reed, a battered reed. Well, he sees the batteredness or the bruise in the reed, and many people would say, oh, just cut it off, right? Break it off, throw it away. But Jesus won't do that. In a smoldering wick, he's not going to put out. You'd say, well, there's nothing there. Just put it out, right? Put it out and let's go find a better one. But no, he's not going to do that because the wick, the reed, they belong to him. They belong to him and he will not extinguish their faith. He's not going to cast them aside, but he's going to nourish them in such a way as to build them up so that the bruises are taken away and so that the smoldering wick becomes a bright burning flame. That's what Christ will do. And he will lead justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will this is what Christ will do. So the way he's conducting himself in this ministry is consistent with the prophet Isaiah in his prediction concerning the Christ. Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. This is the passage that is quoted here by Matthew. And in this passage the prophet Isaiah is predicting the person of Christ, his sufferings, and his glory. Okay? 42 verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So this is fulfilled in the person of Christ and in his ministry in leaving these people and going and being with those who are following him. And here, even with the Gentiles, the Gentiles who are believing in him, right? They're believing in him while the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, are being left out. And that's okay with him, right? That's fine with him. He's calling the elect of God, and these are the ones that he is seeking. Okay, verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? 
But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against himself is laid to waste, and any city or house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? If I am by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Here, another controversy arises with the Pharisees. With the Pharisees, this over the healing of this man who was obviously demon-possessed. This man is demon-possessed. Uh, he, the demon makes him blind and mute. Okay, blind and mute. So he's under a serious affliction in this way. He's brought to Jesus. Jesus heals him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All right, when Jesus does this miracle, it is a clear manifestation that his power is greater than Satan. Right, he's more powerful than the demon. Right, he has to be. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to do this. If the demon is more powerful than Jesus, then the demon will overpower him, will laugh at him, beat him up. Right, like the sons of Sceva, remember those yeah. guys? They went in and the demon beat them up and they all took off running. They had to flee the house naked. Right, well, that would happen to him. And then it would be an obvious display that this guy's a phony. He's a fraud. He's saying that he's the son of God. He's saying he has power, but he doesn't. So here we have a clear display of the power of Christ and that his power is greater than the demon and his power is greater than Satan. Okay? And he's doing good, right? This man is under serious affliction from Satan and physical affliction, being blind and mute, and now he's been delivered from all of these things. The crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? The crowds see this and they rightly conclude, right, that, that this is significant. They're amazed at this, right? They see the obvious miracle that has taken place and it's causing them to ponder and to think, is this the son of David, right? This man cannot be the son of David, can he? They're wondering about this. They're thinking about it. Is he the son of David? They know their Old Testaments. And they know in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God promised to David to establish his house forever and that on his throne, one of his sons would sit for all eternity, that his throne would be an eternal throne. And David understood rightly that this throne, that this son of his was the Christ, right? Was the Christ. And this was understood by the Jews and taught to them that the Christ, when he came into the world, would be of the house of David, right? Don't we know that also from Matthew chapter two, whenever the wise men come and they're looking for the Christ, the religious leaders, the Jews, they gather and they all know where he's supposed to be born. And why do they know that? Because of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that he will be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. That's where he'll be at because he's supposed to be born in the house of David. So they know and understand that the Christ, when he comes into the world, that he will be born from the house of David. Matthew chapter 22 
Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Notice that he's turning the tables on them. You like asking me questions? Let me ask you a question. So he's going to ask them what? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Notice that. No hesitation, right? They don't have to think about it. They don't say, well, you know. No, they know immediately the son of David, that he is the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him any other question. So they know that the Christ is going to be the son of David. This is why Jesus asked them, then why does David in Psalm 110 verse 1, why does David call him his son, his Lord? Right? It doesn't make any sense because in the relationship of father and son, the father is greater than the son. And if anyone is going to be called Lord, it should be the son calling the father Lord. Yet David in the spirit, in the spirit of Christ, calls his son his Lord. So why is that the case? What does David know and understand? That his son is not merely his son, but that his son, according to the flesh, is also the son of God, according to his divinity. That he has two natures, that he has a divine and a human nature. According to his human nature, he is David's son, but according to his divine nature, he is David's Lord. That's the only logical, biblical understanding of Psalm 110, verse 1. That's why Jesus puts it forward to them, because what are they wanting to kill him for? Because he's claiming to be the Son of God, right? But how can the Christ be anything but the Son of God? How is he going to deliver men from their sins if he's merely the Son of David with a sinful nature? It's impossible. He must be the Son of God, the Son of God. Also, Romans, Romans chapter 1, this is in the opening statement of Romans, the Apostle Paul brings this forward right. concerning Christ in his human descent. Human descent. Not that Jesus was just the son of David. He was also the son of Abraham. He was the son of Isaac. He was the son of Jacob. He was the son of Judah. And he was the son of David. Right. In terms of the last significant person, in which Christ would come from, David is the last in that line. That's why they always go to David and then assumed in David are all the others, right? Are all the others, Adam, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, then David. Romans chapter one, right? It would be a lot longer if you had to list all those names every time. So you can just do it by shorthand and say David, okay? Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So there, according to the flesh, he was the son of David the son of David. That's what the people are asking. Could he be the son of David? Is he the Christ, the one 
who has been promised, who is coming into the world. Then verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. The Pharisees are doing this because of their jealousy. Their jealousy. We know that they were insanely jealous of Jesus because he taught the people with authority. He made them look like fools all the time. And people were not listening to them anymore. They were going to him. And so they hated him because of this. They were very jealous of him. And when they're hearing the crowds say these things about him, also, they can't do any miracles either. right? So that makes them look bad too. right? They're the so-called experts and the teachers and the leaders. And yet now this, this man has come onto the scene. right? He didn't go to our schools. He hasn't been educated in our system. And yet the whole world is going after him. And he's able to do these things. Well, when they hear this, they say, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They have a reason, an excuse, as to why it is that Jesus is able to do this without giving him credit, right? Ultimately, what's driving them and everything they do is they refuse to repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. They will not repent. And because of their hard-heartedness and their love of their sin, they will say the stupidest things in the world in order to justify their sin and their rejection of Jesus Christ. And here, he cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. The reason he's able to do this, to have this power over demons, is he's the ruler of demons, right? He has Satan in him, and this is why he is able to exercise power and influence over these demons. This is their, their explanation as to why he's able to do these things in order to turn the people away from Christ, which is what they're doing. They're trying to poison right. the minds of the people against Christ, right, against Christ. They're false teachers, false teachers. They want to lead them away from the truth. Then verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Here, Jesus sh shows them. This is so ridiculous. It's so utterly ridiculous that even common knowledge, even looking at reality objectively, a child can see this. A kingdom divided against itself, how can it stand, right? How can it prosper? If you have a military and you have the army and the navy and they go to war against a, a, a common enemy and the army and navy are fighting against each other, they keep shooting each other and killing each other, how are they going to defeat the enemy? How are they going to be able to stand? It's ridiculous. It never happens that way, right? There's no way that this would ever be the case. Satan fighting against Satan? What is the whole purpose of Satan? To steal, kill, and destroy. He's a murderer from the beginning. In what world does Satan want to deliver men from being blind and mute? To deliver men from being possessed by demons? He doesn't want to deliver men. He wants them to be more possessed, right? He wants them to suffer more. He wants them to die and go to hell. Yet here, this man has been delivered and has now been saved from these afflictions. So if Satan is doing this, he's fighting against himself. And how can a kingdom 
that is fighting against itself, how is it going to be able to stand? If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself and his kingdom cannot stand. It makes no sense. It's utterly ridiculous, but it is a desperate attempt by desperate men to justify their own sin and to make Jesus look bad. This is what they'll do, right? Sinners are insane. We have to understand that. They are insane people who will do whatever it takes to justify their sin, even deny objective reality, which is what they are doing here. They deny the Bible and they deny reality, okay? Psalm 119, verse 69. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all of my heart, I will observe your precepts. Then also, verse 78. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. But I shall meditate on your precepts. Here, they are subverting him with a lie. This is what they are doing. And it is impossible. It doesn't make any sense at all. But rather, it is just coming from their own desperation to make Jesus look like he's an evil, wicked, sinful man when nothing could be further from the truth. Verse 27, if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by who do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Here, he's charging them with partiality, with partiality, because their sons, right, there are Jewish people during this time who were casting out demons or saying that they could cast out demons. And these people who were approved by the Pharisees who were casting out demons, were the Pharisees accusing them of casting out demons by the power of Satan? No, of course not. With them, they say, oh, these are godly men. These are wonderful men. These are men filled with the power of God. So how is it fair that when your sons cast out demons, they're godly men and they have the power of God, but when I cast out demons, I've got Satan within me? It's not right. It's not fair. You're not supposed to show partiality in the way that you judge men. So they can do this, and they're godly men, but I do it, and I have the devil within me. How is this right? How is this fair? If I have to do it by Beelzebub, why do they get to do it? By the power of God and by the power of the Spirit. For this reason, he says, they will be your judges. They will stand up and condemn you on the day of judgment because of your partiality. You're not supposed to show partiality when you judge. You have to judge with righteous judgment. And even the law, Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17, says that you should show no partiality in your judgments. But this is what they're doing here. And why are they impartial to, or why are they showing partiality against Christ? Because they don't like him, right? So they have an agenda. They have an agenda. They don't like him. They don't want to believe in him. So they'll do whatever it takes to make him look bad. Verse 28. But... If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here, this is the danger that they're in, right? The danger that they're in, right? If their judgment about Jesus is wrong, and again, it's obviously wrong, right? Obviously wrong. Then they're making a very grave mistake and one that has eternal consequences, eternal consequences because if what he's doing is by the spirit of god then it is obvious that the kingdom of god has come upon you and who is the king of this kingdom 
but Jesus Christ. And who are they all going to stand before one day? But Jesus Christ. And instead of being reconciled to God through him, you're instead accusing him of being filled with Satan. So how's that going to go for you on the day of judgment when you stand before him and have to answer to him for all the deeds that you have committed in the flesh? This is a very big mistake, a very grave mistake that they are making. One, again, that has severe eternal consequences. The kingdom of God is upon them, and yet they are missing it. They're missing it, and they're not entering into the kingdom of God. They're going to be left out in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, verse 11. Matthew 8, 11. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what's happening right here. Right here in this passage in Matthew chapter 12. The sons of the kingdom are being cast out. The kingdom is among them. The kingdom of God is near to them. The king of the kingdom is standing right in front of them. And they're saying that he has a devil. They're saying that he has the power of Satan within him. And that's why they're going to be on the outside looking in, in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. While the Gentiles who believe in him, they're going to be there reclining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, with them. Okay, then lastly, verse 29. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds a strong man then he will plunder his house. Here, the, um, what's happening here is that a strong man, the strong man, right? The strong man is Satan in this scenario. The strong man has his house or his kingdom. That Satan has his kingdom. He has his house. He has those who are his property. And how can anyone take what belongs to Satan unless he first is able to bind him and then plunder and take what belongs to him for himself? So here, this assumes two things about Jesus. One, that he is in hostility against Satan. That they are not friends, that they are not on the same team. Because he's obviously taking what belongs to Satan, what has been oppressed by Satan, and he's delivering that person. So it's obvious that him and Satan, they're not on the same team. They're not buddy-buddy. Actually, they're enemies, right? They're enemies one against another. Satan has this man, and now Jesus is taking that man from him. It also assumes that Jesus is superior to Satan. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to do this. If the one that enters the strong man's house to carry off and plunder his property... If he's not stronger than the strong man, what will the strong man do? He's going to beat him up and throw him out of the house. Or maybe he'll beat him up and, and then he'll put him in prison. And now you'll be his property as well. But the only way that he can do this is if he is superior to him. And obviously this has happened. Jesus went into the kingdom of Satan. right? And doesn't, uh, doesn't it say that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil? Yes. To destroy the works of the devil. Well, that's what's happening here. This is what the Son of God appeared for, is to destroy the works of the devil, right? Wasn't Satan involved with the very beginning when all the misery and sin entered into the world? He is the tempter. He's the one that brought it about when he tempted Adam and Eve 
to eat the forbidden fruit. And he has bound men into his kingdom. He is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he is called a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In Ephesians 2, 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. In Revelation 22, he's called a dragon. So he's a very formidable force, a very powerful evil spirit. But is he more powerful than Christ? No. And that was manifested to them when Jesus delivered this man. So this is what's really going on. Really, there's a war going on between Jesus and Satan. They're saying that they're on the same team, but in reality, they are at war with one another. And Jesus is beating him. He's beating him, defeating him wherever he wants to. Right, Wherever he wants to, in any way, he's able to do so. And ultimately, he will do so in the end. 